Hi Habibis. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener-supported. You can get subscriber-specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe. Hi everyone, it's Nashua and Ryan, and we had the honor to spend some time talking to a few people last month who are working against the grotesque evictions and run evictions happening throughout Toronto. A lot has changed since we have recorded, but we think a lot of it is very relevant. During this episode, there are a couple of acronyms and technical terms that we just want to explain to you so you can follow along easier. One of those is the LTB, which stands for the Landlord-Tenant Board, and that's an administrative tribunal in Ontario that resolves disputes between residential tenants and landlords. And it's also the only authority in the province that has the power to evict a tenant. Another term that you'll hear throughout the first half of this episode is AGI or an Aggie. An Aggie is an above guideline increase. As part of the landlord-friendly laws that are existent throughout this province, Aggies allow landlords to transfer the costs of certain work and repairs onto tenants, although that's their property that they're going to benefit from at the end of the day for the rest of their lives, and tenants do not get to really benefit from that property in a material, uh, serious way after they move out. And so regardless of a landlord's existing profits, they can, in a way, build in rent increases based on repairs that they are doing to maintain their own property. And so an additional rent increase of up to 3% per year for one to three years may seem minor to some people, but Aggies can result in tenants paying $10,000 or more in rent over the course of their tenancies just from increases like landlords can kind of suggest that, let's say, a wall or like a furnace or a stove needs to be replaced and they can put that and offset that onto a renter instead of on themselves when that's their property that they should be maintaining. Another thing that we talk about a lot are N13s and that's the code name for a form um, which is titled notice to end your tenancy and specifically it's a notice to end a tenancy because the landlord wants to demolish, repair, or convert the unit rather than anything that's the tenant's fault, like not paying your rent. So this is the primary way that landlords do renovations in Ontario is they give an N13 form and then the landlord tenant board can approve it or not. Um, which they often do. And another thing that we talk about are REITs or or rates. Um, This is an acronym, R-E-I-T. It stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And these are really large companies that own and operate and finance different types of real estate, primarily for income purposes. And so, you know, major apartment conglomerates and even office leasing and all those types of huge real estate corporations fall under the REIT category. This episode is really important to talk about rent evictions and especially in the context of COVID. When we talk about above guideline rent increases um, and N13s, it's important to know that in the context of 2021, there's been a rent freeze. So normally landlords are allowed to increase rent by like between one and three percent per year 
just in general. And that's calculated based on inflation and stuff. And that's not insubstantial. Like in one year that can add like 40 to $50 a month on, on someone's rent, depending on how much they're paying. But in 2021, there was a rent freeze in place, and which means the guideline for increase was zero. And that means that landlords lost out on a lot of profits in 2021 and we're a little bit concerned about what that means for what we'll see in 2022 because we do not think that the government will keep the rent freeze in place. It was really just a temporary measure. And the current government in Ontario is in bed with landlords and real estate companies and developers. So there's absolutely no way they would starve them of profits. And so we were very grateful that Patricio and Phil gave us so much of their time to talk about this project, Renovations TO. And we think people should go visit their website or check out their Twitter page. You can find them by going to renovictionsto.com and they have a lot of resources there. Hope you enjoy this episode and stick around for part two of it, in which we interview Cole Weber of Parkdale Legal. This week, we're really excited to be uh, joined by a few guests for this episode. And on this one, we have Phil Zygman and Patricio Davila, and Ryan is co-hosting with me again. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves and then any work you've done around housing, whether it's an installation or a report and what brought you and brought your interest in housing? Phil, why don't you go first? <laughs> Patricio and I kind of co-created uh, Renovations TO. Uh, which is a project to try to document uh, rent evictions and above guideline rent increases in Toronto and uh, do so in a way that will support tenant organizing. And then through that project, I've worked on different reports or different resources for tenants, mostly related to uh, supporting tenant organizing and trying to uh, raise awareness about Aggies and rent evictions. I'm a uh, media artist and also a prof at uh, York University in Cinema Media Arts. I've received a bit of a research grant from Shirk based on my dissertation around visualization and critical practices with data, where um, we started reaching out to um, tenant organizations, to the Parkdale Legal Clinic. And through that, we got into contact with, with Phil and uh, through a mutual friend, uh, Min Suk Lee. And some of the projects, other projects that I've worked on have been around um, homelessness in the downtown core, especially around Ryerson University. And uh, we've been doing installations as part of the public visualization lab. So we focus on trying to use data and um, particular forms of uh, media art to um, create a space so that people can reflect on some of these issues, but also if there's any media attention to uptick the attention maybe to a particular issue and to um, uh, help communities uh, come around particular issues as well. Just bringing it down to basics, can you tell us what exactly a renovation is, maybe in general, and then also in the specific Ontario context? I suspect it's similar uh, outside of Ontario. I'm, I'm more kind of familiar with this jurisdiction and kind of creating the website and the resources around how things work in Ontario. I guess like sometimes it could be used very, very narrowly, but it could also be used very, very broadly. Typically, a renovation is when 
tenants are being asked to or forced to or pressured to move out um, of their homes because their landlords claiming that renovations are needed or renovations are going to be happening and that's why they have to move. Sometimes it's not renovations but demolition or conversion to commercial use. But I that's kind of like for the website and for this project when we're talking about renovations that's what we're talking about. At the same time like above guideline rent increases are related to renovations and I think it's depending on how you're using the word it's fine to call those renovations too. These are cases where landlords conduct renovations to jack up rent significantly and that will price tenants out of their homes. So it's a slightly different process but the dynamic is basically the same that tenants are being pushed out because renovations are being done so that rent could be raised. And then sometimes the city of Toronto or different groups might use renovations more narrowly to refer to only cases that they deem illegitimate cases of eviction or something like that. I think that's problematic and it kind of reflects slightly inaccurate understanding of what's happening in the city. So we kind of use that middle definition for the website. From the work both of you do, what are the impacts of tenants due to displacement? And then when people think about renovations, and thank you for that definition, how is this related to gentrification? But also, Regent Park is such a hot topic for people. And I know it's a hot topic because in 2015, I was at some progressive conferences and I always have this argument with people and I study in public health and people are always like, what happened to Regent Park is actually like good. Like a lot of academics will argue that. However, other academics who are perhaps less of the public health tradition and more from like a socialist tradition or like a, even like a critical human geography tradition will be able to identify that what happened there was a displacement. And a lot of original tenants were not allowed to return because of these renovations that occurred or just Daniel Spectrum offering some community assets like a theater and then having um, mixed quote-unquote housing where it's it's not that mixed when you think about it and there's even reports that have come out of region park where if you do like geography ground truthing there where you like go and look and over the years since 2015 take pictures or talk to um, original tenants of region park you see that the lower income units for example sometimes don't have a balcony but the higher income unit does have a balcony and so people are able to be nimbiest in their own building to the lower income people or units the subsidized units so i know that's a very loaded question Question, but I guess how are road evictions connected to gentrification and how do people gloss over that when they think about affordable housing or mixed mixed kind of units and are, are road evictions used as a segue to gentrification and I'd love to hear from both of you on this because that's just so many questions. That's interesting. I think I, I wonder I'm speculating here but if the people that you're, you've been talking to who have that opinion might be coming from a sort of creative economies, sort of Richard Florida. Richard notion. Florida, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Richard Florida, yeah. <laughs> why is he here now? <laughs> yeah, we've had him in Toronto. I don't know if he's still here, but we've had him in Toronto for over a decade. And um, that that idea of bringing in creative professionals in order to bring the services that come along with their income, and whether it's property tax or just uh, spending capacity of high earnings individuals I don't know but th those theories have been so debunked so many times now that uh, I don't know if how people can maybe s still sort of hold on to that one of the things that inspired me to think about this before meeting with Phil on this project was the San Francisco Tenants Union and the eviction mapping project and that for me was a kind of like a 
like an amazing project, a gold standard around how there is both an analysis of the link between gentrification and displacement, especially of renters and lower income folks, which coincidentally, not coincidentally, also aligns with new immigrants and racialized folks. So that analysis they've put to to the public and a lot of media outlets. And so they've been making that case for a long time with data. I'm just going to add a little bit of a tangent to your question. But one of the things that was really inspiring about that project also was there was a, a mutual benefit sort of structure that they really put into place so that they would show up for eviction hearings, that they would create spaces within the community itself in order to bring residents, tenants, and activists all together. With this project, we've been trying to do one portion of that. I think it takes a, a larger organizational effort and more people to bring the community and do the, the kind of organizing. And what we're trying to do is actually do like a, the, the data part, the, um, the collating part, and to to help that organization and that analysis of the of the issue maybe phil you can f continue on the on the original question between gentrification and and uh and rent evictions so in terms of the relationship between rent evictions displacement gentrification basically rent evictions happen because there's a huge gap between what long-standing tenants are paying as sitting rents and what market rents currently are in toronto so the whole point of rent evicting tenants for landlords is they could kick tenants out and then they could raise rent 30, 50, 100%. When that happens, it inevitably is leading to displacement because as more tenants move, as more tenants are displaced, rents in the neighborhood increase. So then when a landlord comes in and is trying to kick people out so that they could jack up the rent, they're able to do that because the whole neighborhood's rent is significantly higher. And they're able to jack up the rent because market rents are higher. So that means the tenants who get pushed out of their homes, when they look nearby for market rents, they can't afford it. The reason why landlords are rent evicting people is to close the gap between asking rent and average rents or asking rents and sitting rent. And that inevitably is going to lead to displacement, if not in all cases, in the vast majority of cases. And in pushing out uh, working class people and pushing out lower income people, that's also fueling gentrification. Depending on how you define gentrification, you might just view it as synonymous with the sort of displacement we see with rent evictions. Maybe your definition is a little bit different, so you think it's uh, slightly more complicated than that. But rent evictions are really about displacing people, displacing low income, displacing working class people. And landlords are often really upfront about this. Like if you go on the websites of uh, landlords and developers and people who are acquiring low-rise purpose-built rentals, they say very clearly that they're acquiring these buildings and they're getting rents up to market levels and then selling the buildings or that just increases the value of them. So they're very clear that this is what they're doing. And that motive is directly driven by the financialization of housing, right? And so when these corporations are precisely the ones that are either through shareholder structures or through private ownership, they invest in these buildings and they have to extract a profit at all costs. And that cost is basically something where uh, renovations come in really easily for these property owners. Is there a relationship between the housing market and the trends of renovations, whether that's true in Toronto or across major cities, and also if there's any specific nuances between corporate versus individual landlords and the, and the housing market? 
we see rent evictions again because there's this gap between market rents or asking rents and average rents or sitting rents. So, I mean, that's a function of the current housing market. It has to do with, you know, really bad housing policy. It has to do with hyper commodification because of financialization. It has to do with low vacancy rates. Um, there's a lot of factors that are kind of created the current housing market. I mean, it's bad in Toronto, but I think it's bad everywhere uh, in Canada and like in large parts of the world, it's pretty bad. So it is because of these kind of the dynamics of the housing market that we're seeing rent evictions. In terms of kind of different landlords, rent evictions we typically see in smaller buildings. So like either stuff that's above a storefront or a home that's divided into a few units or a low rise rental building that's got maybe like 12 to 20 units. And those are typically like smaller financialized or corporate landlords. So you get asset managers or people who used to flip homes and now they move into this. They're definitely operating as financial vehicles for investors. A lot of them are kind of pooling money from small time, like smaller investors rather than institutional investors. And they're kind of engaging in this practice just to increase the wealth of their investors and get returns for them. When it comes to above guideline increases and like rent evictions more in like that sense, that's where you see the bigger financialized landlords. So the big REITs, uh, the big corporate landlords, the big private REITs or private asset management companies that are kind of using real estate in order to increase the wealth of their investors. And that's where you see they're really aggressive in terms of applying for above guideline rent increases. So you definitely see this different behavior from the different types of landlords. I mean, for, for tenants in Toronto, and I suspect this is similar elsewhere, if you live in a, a low rise building that gets sold, you should immediately start preparing for your landlord trying to rent evict you. Like that is one of the most common signs is that a new landlord buys a building in this climate with real estate prices, what they are. If someone's buying a low rise rental building, it's because they're doing this as an investment. There's a lot of kind of older landlords who have been holding on to these buildings for like 20, 30, 40 years. So the prices are high, they sell them. And then almost immediately, like I see within a few weeks, sometimes, sometimes the landlords even kind of started before the sales finished. Sometimes real estate agents help with the renovation process. I'm trying to push the tenants out. So if your building sold and a new landlord's coming in, that's a huge warning sign that you might be at risk of kind of rent eviction. Both of you have spoken to tenants uh, who have been rent evicted and done work around this. And there's part of the above guideline rent increases in the age of financialization, which is the report you put out with Martine August, which will be linked in our show notes. Part of it is there's a little section on financial strain. And so I want to know if we could hear a bit more about that when people are like living paycheck to paycheck and then what what have increases been like in in like reference to wages in the city um, while wages have not gone up. But I would like to hear um, some of the stories maybe you've heard or, or just some of the facts you both know around this. So the financial strain, I do think, is a bit more relevant for Aggies above guideline rent increases. I mean, rent evictions, it's just like tenants are more forced out and pushed out. And then the gap between what they're paying now and what they would have to pay in order to afford something in their neighborhood is just so big that it's like it's more the displacement rather than I think financial strain like they're just pushed out of their homes and then they have to like they look around and they're like oh my god I can't afford anything even close to where I've been living for the past 20 years so it's like it, there's a huge upheaval and they're getting displaced but it, it, there's obviously financial costs associated with that but um with Aggies, it's where you see the kind of rent increase maybe of, you know, seven to nine percent or a little bit more. If you include the guideline increase over the, a three year period, that might be something where tenants think like, OK, I could afford this. I don't have to move necessarily, but they do feel the increased financial strain. When we were working on the, the Aggie report, 
we were kind of looking at guideline increases over time and like how different levels of above guideline increases kind of impact what your rent's going to be. And I was doing some research into wages and it's like, it's not like, you know, real wages have been going up recently that much. It's not like people get 2% raise every year if you're working uh, in the service industry, or if you're working a minimum wage job, if you're on social assistance, that support is in keeping pace with inflation. So even a guideline increase, which in Ontario is kind of more or less pegged to the rate of inflation, that could put some financial strain on people who are living on tight budgets who are living paycheck to paycheck. So then when you have an Aggie, which could be double or if not more than a guideline increase, it might not seem like a lot of money to some people if you're thinking like, oh, it's 30, 50 bucks a month. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it really adds up. And that was one thing we wanted to show in the report was to show tenants kind of, you know, it's 2% or 3% for, you know, one, two, three years, but it adds up. And uh, that's why tenants really need to try to fight these things before they're kind of feeling that financial strain. In terms of personal stories uh, of eviction or resistance, that's something that uh, Phil and I have been sort of talking about for the past year, actually since the very beginning, because we think that, I think to, to what you were mentioning, Nashua, that like people want to hear that human dimension of something that could be seen as just policy, something that's a, an economic sort of dimension, or something that might be demographic or just a neighborhood. Like how is, how does it affect actual people's lives and more importantly how do people come together to actually resist it and uh and your previous episode on this issue was was really inspiring in that sense one thing that we're trying to do with what we're thinking of doing with the website is start to actually have information on particular cases where we're allowed to actually have information that might be identifying or people will volunteer a part of how they've been able to resist or the effect of, of being displaced. Again, they've done that kind of work with the eviction mapping project in San Francisco. And it's something I think that might be useful with having that human face to a social issue and a societal issue and help people organize. Part of the way that the report was structured was to try to at least give some voice to tenant experiences who have faced Aggies and kind of what it's like from the tenant's perspective to be going through that. Um, like Patricio mentioned, like one thing we we have been talking about for a while and need to get around to is kind of having some more content on the website around tenant organizing or tenant stories. There was a building where tenants were facing rent eviction that had reached out through the website and then they decided to organize to fight back and put pressure on their landlord and with help from tenants across the city with of a tenant union in their neighborhood, they were able to successfully get their landlord to withdraw the eviction notices. So that was a case, it got some media attention. And that's something that we try to share a little bit through the site. But again, it, it we haven't, we're a little behind in developing that part. But yeah, those kinds of stories, I think are important. Uh, also, just to try to spread so that tenants see what's possible. That was one of the things when we started working on this project, we wanted to try to share stories of successful tenant organizing, because a lot of tenants, you know, they get a, a notice of an Aggie, or they get an N13, or their landlord just tells them they have to move out, and they might not think that they have much chance to fight it. So trying to share those stories of successful organizing is really important to try to help tenants see that as possible and also give them some insight into how to go about trying to fight things. 
Thank you for mentioning the other episode, which I will link in the show notes. Um, but um, yeah, Matthew Desmond wrote the book Evicted, which is not a renovation, but it's a it's a book that he focuses. Uh, he's in Milwaukee when he does it. And it's weird because his politics don't align and track with his writing and his sociology. He endorsed Bloomberg and Bloomberg's housing plan, which which is like a big contradiction academics often have with the work they do when they do ethnography. But beyond that, what worked for him and what made that book a bestseller, I think, was the personal narratives. But at the same time, do we always have to do that? I don't know. But the big question I had was the Wellesley Institute also tried to do a little bit of that with evictions and housing and COVID tracking. And I, they were able to identify that race is playing a factor with some of the housing issues that are happening in Toronto and who can uh, get units rented to them. And Desmond Cole, like five years ago, also wrote a piece where he said that Black millennials in Toronto are losing opportunities because they can't even get a place, an apartment rented to them to begin with. And I'm wondering if, and I know this is not in the jurisdiction of the work you two do, but if you two have on the side observed any correlations be- between like a renovation and like race and somebody maybe wants wanting to rent to um, whiter people or more blue collar people or this creative class of people when they previously had maybe the like immigrant folks in their building or their units. We don't actively uh, collect race-based data within our questionnaire within the website. Not yet. I mean, that's an interesting sort of dimension to, to add to that. I don't know if I have much to say in terms of the data that we have. I do have, this, this might be one of the things of how Patricio has, <laughs> has contributed to the conversation, but it's like the uh, eviction mapping project actually makes those connections. And, and they're so good because they they make it pretty plain at who gets affected. And it, um, I have to say, it would stand to reason to think that that the, the systemic racism and how it it has a economic sort of dimension would be directly reproduced when you displace people for higher earning sort of folks because you have a higher rent and you have and you you lock out so many people because of affordability. So for me, it's a it's a it's a logical conclusion as opposed to something that's empirically based from something that we've gathered here. I don't know, Phil, if you've come across different data. No, I think that's right. Like, I think like the Wellesley Institute type report looking at evictions, income and race, I think like and the kind of well-known connections between race and wealth or income. Like we like Patricio mentioned, we're not we haven't been collecting that data. But I, I would think that the dynamics are relatively the same. We've seen it too, I guess, with COVID evictions and who's been impacted most by job loss or by getting COVID in Toronto. And kind of we've seen it too in some of the organizing that's come up around COVID evictions. So I would suspect it's the similar kind of dynamics are at play, but we haven't been collecting that. So I just wanted to bring it uh, into slightly broader issues that are happening in Toronto right now. I mean, the, the relationship between displacement and homelessness and who's been in the news lately is Khalil Seawright for being sued by the city of Toronto um, for his tiny shelters that he's been building. And I'm just wondering if your work has overlapped with that at all, or if you've had any encounters with those kind of strategies to try and reduce homelessness and how it might impact the project. We did a project with Dave Colangelo, another collaborator and part of the Public Visualization Lab, and he's now at Ryerson where it was called In the Air uh, tonight. And it uh, specifically during the month of February, it looked at how people were actually circulating news and information around homelessness and shelters within uh, the downtown core. 
We worked with Kathy Crow, who is a street nurse and homelessness activist. And part of the, the strategy that we had was to create, for that particular project, create spectacle around a particular thing. We lit up the image center in Ryerson, which has sort of lights around the building that uh, are quite nice. But we, we added uh, animation to it that specifically uh, represented data <clears throat> around social media and around homelessness. And we used that as a, just a, a starting point where Kathy Crow would do justice walks, where she would talk to students and, and just folks around that area who wanted to know about um, some of the living conditions of people experiencing homelessness and what the shelters were like. We also worked with the St. Michael's Hospital where they had a um, clinic and they would um, offer training to uh, people experiencing homelessness. And so our strategy was basically around a project, get some attention and increase visibility for folks who are already doing the work rather than kind of inventing uh, the, the work ourselves. How would you describe the Landlord-Tenant Board? Um, and I ask this because I think when you hear from landlords, they say, oh, the, the LTB is just tenant-focused, like it only cares about tenants. And then that is sort of at odd with you know what we're seeing about virtual eviction blitzes happening during COVID and just the way the LTB has been handing out evictions left, right, and center. And so how would you characterize the Landlord-Tenant Board? What is... What is, what confines is it operating under and how does that impact maybe the decisions that it puts out? I would say that landlords exercise their power through the LTB and that if tenants want to, whether it's an Aggie or a rent eviction or an eviction, if they want to fight that or have good outcomes, then typically relying on the LTB is not going to be a good strategy. I think Keep Your Rent and some other groups have really exposed the LTB in lots of ways around COVID evictions. I don't really have anything to add to that. I know when it comes to above guideline rent increases, the LTB basically more or less, as we talk about in the report, I mean, there is some scrutiny, but more or less the LTB is just there to rubber stamp what the landlord asked for. The, The LTB already accepts the logic that it's okay for landlords to pass on these costs to tenants, whether landlords are making millions in profits each year or not. The rule is that landlords are able to do this, so the LTB is happy to oblige. And when it comes to rent evictions, it's tricky because technically it's legal for landlords to evict tenants under the guise of doing renovations. That's not to say that landlords always go about it legally or that they always like follow the letter of the law. But in the Residential Tenancies Act, landlords are allowed to issue N13 notices, get permits to do renovations and kick tenants out. So when it comes to the LTB, it's sort of hard to advise tenants when they're facing rent eviction to just, oh, you know, challenge this at the LTB and just say your landlord's acting in bad faith. I mean, we know landlords are acting in bad faith when it comes to rent evictions. The goal is to displace tenants. But so few cases make it to the LTB because so few because so many tenants feel pressured or they're intimidated to leave or landlords allow the building conditions to deteriorate, deteriorate to the point where tenants can't live comfortably in their homes anymore. Um, but so few cases have made it to the LTB when it comes to rent evictions that it's hard to say for sure kind of what the a tenant's odds are there. But there are certainly cases where tenants have been ordered evicted based on N13 notices. So yeah, the LTB is not something that tenants should rely on too much if they want to have a good outcome. To add to that, one of the challenges that we've faced when we've been um, sort of talking to ACTO, for instance, and others is 
the absolute disaster that is LTB data. And so if you want a system that works either by design to benefit a particular party and just claim incompetence, I think not keeping proper data and not making it accessible is a sure way of just saying, well, this is too complicated. We don't have the resources to actually document everything and, and make everything available. So through an open data policy, I think one thing that could happen with a landlord tenant board would be to actually lift the covers from what is actually happening. We don't have really have access to resolutions, like decisions, and the, and the legal clinics have a hard time getting that information too. And so the idea that a hard to track phenomenon is taking place benefits those who are prepared. And those who are prepared tend to be the ones who either have the capital or who organize actually. And so this is my sort of push for, for uh, LTB either abolishment or a massive renovation so that it can actually be scrutinized at the level that it should be. Yeah, just on the about the data, like the fact that the LTB doesn't track the outcomes of eviction hearings. So when you get LTB, if you file an FOI and you get LTB data on evictions, it says if there was an order issued, but it doesn't tell you if it was an eviction order or not. And they don't, the fact that they don't keep track of that, I think is very, it's telling, but it, it, it's just nuts. And then like the LTB, like the data, like they they don't make the data public. They don't make it easy to access. When they list landlords, they'll often just list like a numbered company or a shell company. So like a lot of our landlord information on the website came from doing, and for the uh, the Aggie report came from kind of doing that research to dig, dig into who is actually this company that owns this building. And that's important information for tenants because if you're facing rent eviction and your landlord's just a numbered company, it's very hard for you to kind of organize and put pressure on them if you don't have information about them. And from the LTB's perspective, if they cared about who was conducting rent evictions, who was conducting own use evictions, they would actually be doing the work to see, okay, who's behind this number company? Have they done this before? Like their data is such that they couldn't even, if they're not interested, but even if they were interested in trying to see who's behind this and who's repeat offenders and stuff like that, their data is just doesn't allow them to do that because it's so superficial. So yeah, it's just bad data and it's not acceptable and they don't make it available to the public. Big problem. And so I, we, you touched a little bit about resistance earlier and the ways people have resisted in the episode before this that we did was also kind of ways that tenants have organized and resisted. And I'm wondering, um, have, are there unique ways you two have seen? There's one way in Halifax where um, now you send a postcard to the person who currently lives in your uh, unit and you tell them how much your unit used to cost so they can figure out the the rent increase, what it was. But also, if you don't mind telling our audience a bit more about what they can find on Rent Evictions TO on the website and what resources are there on that website and where you plan to go moving forward with the data you've been collecting and why it's important to visualize data and also like have these reports out on Aggies. On Rent Evictions TO right now, we basically have our map, which displays rent evictions and Aggies in the city of Toronto. We also have those in a tracker. So the map kind of displays them geographically. The tracker, it's a bit easier if you want to sort by date. If you want to search a particular landlord, you're able to do that. You could sort by landlord. So it's a different way to kind of visualize the information or sort through it. Um, we also have just basic information for tenants about their rights. One of the things when we kind of were developing the project is we really didn't want to kind of duplicate things that already existed. We weren't trying to kind of crowd stuff out that was already there. But if there were kind of resources that weren't there for tenants, then we created them. So when it comes to rent evictions, for example, technically, according to the law, you have a right of first refusal or the right to return. 
So if you read like a, like a very legally description of of a renovation or of evictions for renovations, they'll, it'll say, oh, tenants are able to move back in after the renovations are done at their old rent. The problem is that I've yet to come across a tenant who's been able to do that. It, it's been well documented that if landlords violate this routinely and that tenants don't really have any recourse in terms of getting their homes back because once a new tenant is brought in, which again is the whole point for the landlord to do the renovation, when a new tenant's brought back in, the LTB is not going to be kicking them out. So there might be some minor fines for a landlord, which they recoup very quickly because they're you know increasing their revenue so much through the renovation. So we kind of created some resources and information on the site to make clear to tenants like, yes, technically there is this right of first return or sorry, right of first refusal or right to return, but don't bank on it. And all evidence points to your landlord violating that if you indeed try to enforce it. So we created some resources like that. And we also tried to have some stories or some examples of successful tenant organizing. So there were the relatively well-known, uh, the rent strike in Parkdale in 2017, the Metcap rent strike. We talk about another rent strike in the Aggie report, but we do have some links to whether it's news stories or interviews that kind of show tenants what successful organizing has looked like. Since there's been the, the tenants in Weston that were able to fight off their own eviction and pressure their landlord to drop uh, the notices, there's a new story on that. And there's some information there about how the tenants were able to organize with their neighbors and other tenants across the city and kind of what tactics they use to put pressure on their landlord. So we, we do try to have that information. And I think that feeds into the question about uh, what tactics have been successful. I think when it comes to things like Aggies and rent evictions, again, because the LTB is not the weight for tenants to achieve justice or a good outcome that what they have to do is kind of organize outside the LTB. And at least in my experience and seeing what tenants in Toronto have done and when they've had success, it's by putting pressure on their landlord. It's by targeting their kind of financial interests or trying to expose things or make things more public. So that kind of raises the cost for the landlord. It might be that there's other tactics that that work, but based on what I've seen in the city, at least when it comes to rent evictions and Aggies, that seems to be what works. We've also been thinking about the collection of data and the representation of data as a form maybe of seeing what your neighbor is 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 happening with your neighbor, basically. So when people don't know each other because they're not used to organizing, but they're, they find themselves in a particular situation where uh, now they have to look at tactics and, and, or a strategy of how to stay in their home. This site might help them identify people with whom they can get together because they have a, they have a cause in common. That's on one level. So that's kind of like the, the neighborhood effect or the, the neighbor effect. There's another part of it where when you start seeing on the neighborhood level or serial renovations across different properties, and that's especially with the more corporate property owners, that's a way to actually apply a lot more pressure across different properties. So for us, we're trying to put a bit of effort in identifying numbered companies and try to create those links so that when you do a search for a particular landlord, you'll see a whole host of current and past cases. The other aspect of this is to put them on a map so that all of a sudden you see a shape 
of where are, are there a lot of renovations happening in in Rosedale? Not really. There's a lot of them happening in either Weston, in either Rexdale or parts of Scarborough or in Parkdale. So you, you start sort of seeing a pattern that when you layer on socioeconomic, racialized communities, it's like all these things start piling on and you start seeing these co- kind of um, correlations. Just to jump in really quickly on what Patricia was saying about kind of the landlord piece. So we had a tenant reached out last week to report that they were they just received N13 notices from their landlord. It was kind of like a, a shell company. But when you ran a corporate search, you find out that the director of the company is actually someone who's renovated people before who tenants from another building had reported through the website. So that's the type of case where because this information is being collected somewhere and being made public, the tenants in the building who kind of just got their N13 notices, they're able to see, okay, we we understand this landlord's done this before. He's not acting in good faith. And it, it allows them to prepare and even possibly reach out if to the tenants in the other building if that's something that they're interested in doing. So it's by kind of having the information about landlords that they're able to, one, be more prepared in terms of their organizing, but also possibly reach out to those other tenants. One of the things that we're also thinking about is how to provide what we've done with one site and it be usable, reproducible across a lot of different uh, areas and different organizing efforts. So we started the uh, Renovations TO, but then it got taken up by, it was Cole, I think, who kind of talked to us, right? And others for Keep Your Rent, for the COVID eviction site, but also with Hamilton. In Hamilton, there's a similar uh, sort of efforts being being made, both at COVID evictions and uh, other kinds of evictions. So what we're hoping is that the, the technical infrastructure of the website with the mapping, with data collection, and with uh, sort of the storage of that data be very easily copyable and repurposed repurpose for whatever organizing efforts people are doing across Canada. Thank you so, so much for for all of that. It's been really fantastic hearing about all this amazing work and just learning more about what the landscape is like in Ontario. So where exactly can people find you? Where can they find the work that you're doing and where can they stay up to date on on this advocacy as well? So the the website is uh, renovictionsto.com. We also have Twitter account, it's at Renovictions. And that's where we'll either share stories of tenant organizing around the city, or if there's tenants facing renovation who are organizing in Toronto, that's kind of where we try to put out either if there is a phones app or calls to action or more urgent stuff, it's, it's typically on Twitter. And the data is all up on the renovictionsto.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you guys for doing this work. Your, uh, your show is amazing. And uh, it gives me lots of pleasure to, to listen to your episodes and, and the energy you guys put to this. It's, uh, it's really invigorating. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the first half of this episode with Patricio and Phil. Please check out the show notes for more information on Renovictions TO. Again, we recorded this episode last month and a lot has changed since we've recorded. We wanted the second half of this episode to be about kind of the organizing that's happening and the what is to be done. And so we sat down with Cole Weber, who does a lot of work in Parkdale. And since then, we've seen an Easter eviction attempt of a man 
and his two children and 25 cops showed up. It was all over Twitter and social media and it was a win for uh, people who defended him and the community uh, and people who do eviction defense because the cops did not evict him. And so that's one update that we, we have these small victories that are very important. But at the same time, we have a government, as Ryan said, that is very closely tied to real estate developers and owners. And that government is trying to criminalize tenant organizing and continue to allow mass evictions. And Ryan will tell us a bit more about how they're doing that. Ontario recently introduced a pretty large bill on COVID recovery, Bill 276. It touches on many, many different areas. But one of the things they snuck in, which is really unrelated to COVID recovery, was a way to criminalize tenant organizers by fining up to $25,000 for people who record or distribute landlord tenant board hearings. And since landlord tenant boards hearings have been online, the public can request access to view them. And tenant organizers have been using this um, tool to record and post the hearings just to show what an eviction hearing looks like and also to expose some of the really awful things that happen in those hearings. I remember one where a tenant had died and an adjudicator kept asking where the tenant was. They were trying to talk to the tenant who wasn't present and other people were trying to say the tenant passed away but this adjudicator was like, I'm talking to the tenant but the tenant couldn't have come because the tenant had passed away. And so obviously it's really important for the public to see these types of things, like the way that adjudicators view tenants and just in a really dehumanizing way. And what this new law would do is fine people for exposing those things, $25,000 if you distribute it or record it. And that's really awful. And there was another one, I appreciate you bringing up that example. There was another one where they're having children translate, which is absurd and ridiculous and like a, a memory that will scar children, but also just not, that's not okay. And it should not be illegal that children are doing translation for their parents who are being evicted. And there should not be evictions ever, but especially during COVID. People need places to live and Canada has resources. This government has resources and they allocate them in, in weird ways. And as of August 1st last year, when evictions resumed, the groundwork had been laid for these mass eviction blitzes. We now know, as Ryan said, that they're going to be permanently online. This government likes that cruel efficiency. And in November and December alone, the LTB held 12,000 eviction hearings, which was an increase of 20% compared during the same period in 2019. And this was, keep in mind, partially while we were in a lockdown, if we had to go in person for evictions, this would never be possible or feasible or tenable because you, you can't just, you can't do that many evictions. You realistically cannot, like there's no system that has the capacity for that other than a digital system and a digitized process. And they, some of them last less than a minute, which is ridiculous. But again, like tenants are fighting back and you're going to hear more about that from Cole Weber in the second part. And I will be linking to some tenant wins and victories and some tenant unions that we think people should follow and support. So we've seen uh, York Southwestern Tenants Union, they've been on the show. Parkdale Organize, they boost different groups and organizing efforts throughout Parkdale. Crescent Town Tenants Union, some great comrades there. One of my friends there, I'm biased. West Lodge Tenants Union has done a lot. West Lodge Tenants, they've gotten a space for themselves in one of the buildings to do kind of a food bank situation. Goodwood Tenants Union is another one. And there have been a lot of examples of tenants organizing to fight Aggies. And we will link to some of that in the show notes. So we hope people enjoy this. We hope people continue to also push back and fight back because people should know what goes on in these hearings. People should know also how to organize their communities. And Cole offered us a lot of insight into 
to that. And we also got to touch on encampments and tiny shelters and the state of housing in Toronto, but also the ways people should not just get cynical, but also fight back and organize. Hey everyone, thank you for continuing to listen to this episode. We just had that great first half with Phil and Patricio about rent evictions, and now we're so happy to be joined by Cole Weber. Cole works in Parkdale, which is where my family first immigrated, and I worked at Park for a bit until COVID. So Parkdale has a place in my heart. Um, My family had to move because we kind of got, I guess, priced out. But anyways, Parkdale, I care a lot about Parkdale, and I'm really happy that Cole said yes, that he would join us. So uh, Cole, how are you today? And can you tell us a little bit about Parkdale for you? So I've worked in the Parkdale neighborhood for about 10 years. And I mean, Parkdale is a historically working class and immigrant neighborhood uh, in the west side of downtown Toronto. And it's characterized by its high density of rental housing. So more than 90% of neighborhood residents in South Parkdale are renters, which is well above the city average in terms of the proportion of renters versus homeowners. The majority of the rental housing stock in Parkdale is owned privately. And in recent years, that stock has come under the control of a small handful of corporations and financial interests. And so as the real estate sector has become more central to the Canadian economy and is looked to more and more as a site of value extraction or profit making, the rental housing market begins to exert a huge amount of pressure on the lives of working class people who are the majority of Parkdale residents. Can you tell us a bit about your work and organizing and how that interacts with what's going on there in Parkdale? Back in 2014, a landlord called Achilles moved into the rental housing market in Toronto and bought four apartment buildings in the Parkdale neighborhood. At that time, Achilles set about evicting as many tenants as possible from those buildings, removing live-in superintendents from the building who had been responsible for day-to-day maintenance and upkeep of the building, and turning the buildings into construction sites as they pushed tenants out and renovated units to what they called Achilles first-class standard. So at that time, tenants in those buildings began to express their outrage at the situation for one, and then started a process of organizing in their buildings by forming committees of their neighbors and linking up across the neighborhood between the four buildings. That campaign against Achilles succeeded in beating back a large above guideline rent increase at one building on Jameson Avenue. It also succeeded in raising the standards and improving conditions in those buildings in the neighborhood. So before, you know, tenants were just told to call some 1-800 number to an office in Markham if they had any problems in the building. And that situation changed where we were seeing sort of fleets of, of Achilles deckled uh, vans moving through the neighborhood attending to tenants' maintenance concerns. So the success of that campaign and the, the experience of the tenants involved led to an ongoing organizing process. So some of the most committed and active tenants from those buildings continued to meet along with some of us who had been supporting their efforts in the neighborhood. And that group became an organization called Parkdale Organize. You've touched on it a bit, but 
Uh, can you tell the audience a bit more about what makes Parkdale unique with this? Not only like the, the kind of makeup and the changes that are happening, but kind of the, the organizing that's been going on. It happens everywhere, but I think uh, sometimes people have we've been speaking to like look to Parkdale as a model or it's one of the kind of it's spoken as uh, about as like one of the last affordable places but also what's making it unique right now with the organizing it should be said that the parkdale neighborhood does have a rather rich history of community activism and organizing so for example there were rent strikes in the west lodge buildings in parkdale in the early 90s and significant battles between landlords and tenants beyond that uh, throughout past decades in more recent years i think what's changed is that there is a concerted effort by working class people in the neighborhood to form organizations at the level of the apartment buildings, link up across those buildings to support each other's struggles, not only with landlords, but around all the struggles, the myriad of struggles uh, which working class people face day to day. So there have been struggles around major workplaces like the Ontario Food Terminal, where many Parkdale tenants are employed. There have been struggles around conditions in the local schools, as well as against cuts to local services. So I think that this concerted effort and political work by working class people in the neighborhood has created uh, a social and political shift in the neighborhood in that today many people view organizing and collective action as a reasonable and appropriate course of action to take in the face of the struggles that people are faced with whereas this is not uh, you know how people are taught to respond in society it's always you know, rely on a politician, access a social service, make a legal case. People are often channeled into these dead ends uh, that serve to reproduce the system that's fundamentally oppressing and exploiting them. So I think the turn to collective action uh, by working class people in Parkdale continues to shape how people respond to day-to-day -day struggles and has prepared working class people in Parkdale to withstand the COVID crisis, for example, in a way that perhaps other neighborhoods were not so prepared. Can you tell us a bit about some of those wins that have been experienced? Like I think the 1251 King Street rent strike was, was very famous. The most high profile example and the example which involved the greatest number of participants is the 2017 rent strike in apartment buildings owned by Metcap. So at that time, the landlord Metcap, which owns a significant number of apartment buildings in the neighborhood, they applied to the landlord tenant board to raise rent above the guideline in five buildings at approximately the same time. So this created a situation where tenants were able to organize not only at their building where tenants were being directly affected by this potential huge spike in rent, but to link up with other buildings owned by the same landlord within literally meters of their building facing the same thing. And so at the height of that rent strike in the spring of 2017, 
2019, there were more than 300 tenants withholding rent and hundreds more participating in a series of escalating actions against the landlord, its investors, the landlord and tenant board, and so on. So that struggle succeeded in beating back those rent increases and laid the groundwork for, I think, a lot of the tenant struggles that have transpired in Parkdale since then. The rent strike at 1251 King Street West came about less than a year after the victory of the Metcap rent strikers. And that was the rent strike that occurred by in one apartment building, one high-rise building on, on King Street in Parkdale. And that building is owned by essentially an individual owner. So I think the I think the 1251 rent strike sort of pointed to the fact that by applying the same principles of collective action and self-organization and direct conflict with those responsible for imposing hardship on people's lives, that those principles could be operative and successful even in a somewhat different context from the Metcalf rent strike where it was multiple buildings, a large corporation that's Canada-wide with significant outside investment interests and so on. I think the other notable thing about the 1251 King rent strike is that the groundwork for that struggle was laid during the Metcalf rent strike those tenants on King Street got notice that their rent would be increasing above the guideline during the months of the Metcap rent strike. And so the tenants there were able to look at what was happening in the Metcap buildings and start to do that groundwork of establishing communication with neighbors in the building, forming a committee, educating themselves about what other tenants were doing about similar issues in the neighborhood and so on. So there's that kind of direct link from one struggle to the next. During these processes, I mean, and obviously couldn't have been easy for the tenants and so how have landlords sort of retaliated to organizing? I think in Parkdale when people come together to organize it's established very early on that if and when the landlord attempts to retaliate against tenants as a group or against individual tenants that they perceive to be in leadership positions within the organizing that collectively people are going to respond to have that person's back. So I think that's important because the reality is that you know landlords do retaliate against tenants who who organize and so during the Metcap rent strike for example you know we had a situation as drastic as the CEO of the company attempting to run down a tenant in his pickup truck in the neighborhood in the 1251 King rent strike one family who was involved in the organizing who lived in the building was targeted with eviction based on bogus behavioral reasons so there are examples of of landlords attempting to retaliate against tenants the the critical piece is that it is established early on that tenants will collectively defend anyone who is the target of that retaliation you've touched on this a bit but we'd be interested in hearing more about who is getting priced out but also who is kind of being prodded to move in or like the the kind of idea of like who are these landlords trying to bring into the neighborhood so the way that rent control works or doesn't work in Ontario is that we have a system that's sometimes called 
vacancy decontrol. And all that means is that during a tenancy, while a tenant is in the unit, the rent can only be raised incrementally and only once per year based on the government guideline. However, once the unit becomes vacant, there is no limit on how much the landlord can raise the rent. So th there's a built-in financial incentive for landlords to remove tenants, especially tenants who are long-time tenants, who've been living in their unit for a long time, who the landlords love to characterize as paying, quote, below market, unquote, rent. So built into the profit-making strategies of these corporations and financial interests is this practice of pushing tenants out of their homes and flipping units. In terms of who they're looking to bring in as new tenants, they they don't care. They just want people who will pay increased rents. So for example, in Parkdale, the average rent being paid for a one-bedroom unit in the apartment buildings is still down around $1,200 because of how many tenants have been living in the units for years. However, if you if you look to go and rent a unit on the market in one of these buildings, you're looking at paying more like $1,700, $1,800 a month, right? So immediately, landlords are able to increase their monthly profits by hundreds of dollars just by pushing a single tenant out. So the strategies that landlords use to accomplish this are various. There's, there's a bunch of them. Uh, but fundamentally, it's the ongoing tenancies of work working class renters, which stand between landlords and increased profits. Can you actually tell us about how this plays out in adjudication? We're talking about the landlord-tenant board, I think a lot of people perceive it to be landlord-friendly or tenant-friendly depending on who you represent. And, you know, of course, you're a tenant lawyer. But can you tell us a bit about how the LTB operates and makes landlord problems worse? Is that a a function of the types of adjudicators on there or the legal constraints that it's under? The number one rule of landlord and tenant law is that tenants pay their rent. So in that sense, the landlord and tenant board and landlord tenant law in Ontario is very unfriendly to working class people. High rents and stagnating wages create a situation where people's rent burden is extraordinary, right? It's the single greatest expense in working class people's lives. They're handing over a huge portion of their monthly income each month to a landlord to keep a roof over their heads. And in neighborhoods like Parkdale, you know, people pay disproportionately high levels of their income on rent. It's up around 50%. Whereas any policy expert will tell you that the rate for housing to be affordable for a family is for your housing costs not to exceed 30% of your total income, right? So the number one reason why tenants face eviction is because they can't afford rent. It's as simple as that. And obviously the COVID crisis, the associated economic recession has created a situation where far more people are unable to afford rent in full. Beyond issues with rent, I mean, in Ontario, tenants do have security of tenure, meaning the landlord has to have a reason to evict you. And the only authority in Ontario which can order an eviction eviction is the landlord and tenant board. So there's never a circumstance in which a landlord can just simply come to you and say, you, you got to get out. It's a legal process. A landlord has to issue a board approved 
eviction notice. They have to file an application with the tribunal. There has to be a hearing, so on and so forth. What's interesting or notable in Parkdale is that the landlords have developed specific strategies for pushing out long-term tenants. So for example, beyond rent issues, behavioral-based evictions become more and more common. So for example, there's an ongoing situation in the neighborhood where an elderly lady who is the primary caregiver of her disabled adult son is under the threat of eviction and was dragged through the legal process because the landlord determined that her unit was, quote, cluttered, unquote, and that by having a cluttered unit, uh, this tenant was somehow risking you know, the health of, of their neighbors. So that's what we see. We, we see landlords looking for ways uh, to put pressure on tenants to push them out on whatever bogus and shaky grounds that they can kind of drum up. Above guideline rent increases are a huge issue that exacerbate the rent situation. So both the Met cap rent strike and the rent strike at 1251 King Street West in Parkdale were precipitated by attempts by the landlord to raise the rent above the guideline. An above guideline rent increase is essentially a rent increase that exceeds the annual rent guideline, which is set by the government on the basis that the landlord has put money into the building, that the landlord has incurred capital expenditures that it should then be able to pass on to the tenants in the form of a rent increase. So common example, Examples of capital expenditures would include things like balcony renovations, replacing a roof, changing the heating system in a building, doing work to the grounds of the building or to the, the lobby and entranceway, elevator repairs, so on and so forth. So the legislation is set up in such a way that these, these major expenses that landlords incur should be passed off to the tenants in the forms of these above guideline rent increases. So in that sense, the Landlord and Tenant Board is basically structured to rubber stamp these applications by landlords. It's not, there's no consideration given to, you know, the situation of the tenants, their ability to pay, the fact that they've been paying rent for years and have already enriched the landlord. All that's really looked at is whether or not the landlord incurred expenses and then the rent increase is approved. So that's why, you know, these struggles are against above guideline increases are so notable is because tenants have been organizing and taking collective action against a process which is 100% legal, but which is wrong and which increases the level of hardship that people are facing. Do you think there's a difference in individual versus corporate landlords when it comes to this sort of action? And you touched on it a bit at the beginning, but it would be interesting to go into more detail on whether the power behind a corporate landlord makes a lot of difference in the lives of tenants. When it comes to individual landlords versus corporate landlords or financialized landlords. I think it should be said, first of all, that the economic system under which we live and the economic forces which shape our lives are conditioning the behavior and the strategies of, of all landlords, regardless, big or small, right? So for example, the, uh, the small landlord uh, is typically, quote unquote, is typically responsible for rent evictions, as they're called. So these are, these are generally not large corporations or financial firms. They're individual real estate investors who seek financial backing from various sources and then go in and buy up small buildings and houses for the purposes of flipping them, uh, removing tenants, jacking up the rents, and so on. The large financialized landlords, like a company like Capreet 
or Timber Creek Asset Management, now called Hazelview. These are these are large financialized landlords that come in and buy up apartment buildings. And the strategies that they employ to push tenants out are, are different based on the, the physical composition of the properties that they're purchasing, based on the, the legal framework around those properties and so on. But the fundamental uh, forces which are driving both these processes are rooted in you know the capital society that we live in and the prominence, the increasing prominence of the real estate sector within that society. So I would say that the the struggles that tenants renting from individual landlords versus corporate or financialized landlords, the shape of those struggles may differ. The particulars of you know how those struggles play out may vary, but fundamentally, these are the same economic forces at work. Basically, like you've touched on it, and everybody's kind of felt the, not everybody, but many working class people have felt the kind of strain that COVID has put on people financially and socially in so many other ways. But how have things changed during COVID regarding the LTB and this digitization of these hearings? Because I know before the digitization, uh, people still showed up for their neighbors and people still organized and you could still fit people in a hearing room to kind of show physical presence. And people's defense TO and people behind a few of these accounts have been showing kind of the corruption of these digital blitzes and yeah how has how how is digitizing them it's always been a kind of awful process but how has digitizing them changed things we saw children translating for parents which is egregious and i think illegal but if you could expand a bit on how that digital component has shifted things during covid the covid crisis has created a situation in which the rate of rent delinquency has risen across the board. So in other words, many more people than usual have not been able to pay their rent in full as a result of the economic recession. In response to this crisis, the Conservative government of Ontario temporarily paused evictions beginning in March 2020. That pause on evictions ended at the end of July and evictions resumed throughout the summer and fall. The government made procedural changes to the landlord and tenant board with the goal of speeding up the process of eviction against tenants in Ontario. How they accomplished this was by appointing many more landlord and tenant board adjudicators, and these are political appointments, of course, by moving the whole landlord and tenant board hearing process to online in video conference calls, and by prioritizing the scheduling of eviction hearings against tenants who fell behind on rent during the months of the pandemic. So really beginning in you know late October, the government started holding what were referred to by the landlord and tenant board adjudicators as express eviction blocks. So these were video conference calls scheduled for about two hours in duration, where anywhere from eight to 12 tenants were scheduled to face summary eviction on a Zoom call. So these procedural changes really facilitated a process of mass evictions, where people who lost their jobs during the pandemic and were unable 
to make full rent payments were evicted in a short period of time online by a recently restaffed landlord and tenant board. I think what's notable is how tenants organized to push back against that process by organizing in their buildings, making sure that people had support who were facing these online evictions, trying to arrange for legal representation, putting pressure directly on landlords to drop evictions, and so on. The other interesting thing is how the move to online eviction hearings created a situation in which the cruelty and brutal efficiency of the landlord and tenant board was exposed publicly in a way that it never had been before. So the way in, the ways in which the landlord and tenant board operates were sort of put forward by tenant groups through social media, websites they created, and simply by encouraging as many people as possible to join and observe these hearings as they happened. So I think that working class people broadly now have better idea about just how much this landlord and tenant board process is geared towards facilitating the process of, of profit making in the rental housing real estate market. Thank you. That was incredibly informative. Um, and we want to bring it to some of the things that are going on in Toronto right now beyond evictions. But I think the overlap between when people are evicted or displaced and, and the homelessness crisis in Toronto and how Toronto has recently taken action against uh, Khalil Seawright, who is building tiny shelters throughout the city. And I'm wondering if your work has overlapped with that kind of work at all and maybe how it intersects with homelessness advocacy and whether tenant organizing has any impact on that. In Parkdale, there are multiple homeless encampments, three primary encampments, and also people uh, sleeping outdoors uh, throughout parts of the neighborhood. And, you know, working in the neighborhood, you can see how evictions directly contribute to the growing homelessness crisis. So, for example, I know that, you know, the man who started the encampment, which is in the parkette at the intersection of Queen Street West and Dufferin Street, at sort of the easternmost end of the Parkdale neighborhood, he started the encampment after having been evicted. It's a, it's a really tragic story, which I won't get into the details of, but he, uh, he was pushed out of the apartment where he was living and, as a result, felt he had no other choice uh, than to break camp. I think it's just plainly obvious that a society which commodifies housing and exerts pressure on people to push them out of their homes, a society where shelter is essentially held ransom by powerful financial interests, is going to create the conditions under which a growing number of people will not have housing. And I think, you know, the, that's been exposed even further under the COVID crisis, but I think you know everybody. Everybody is aware that evictions, homelessness, these are social conditions which clearly have been present in our city long before this public health crisis. It's just that the COVID crisis has 
in some instances exacerbated those those things and has given them a greater profile in, in the public eye. Thank you. And I appreciate that connection to public health. This week, also in like a more outside issue, is we witnessed a clip that kind of went viral on Twitter where it was like East York residents saying that a parking lot is the heart of their community because the parking lot is slated to become affordable housing. And I think it was East York. Um, and, and so this sentiment and variations of it seem to be prominent among people and landlords. Not the idea that a parking lot is the heart of the city, but that affordable housing and people who need rent that kind of is quote unquote affordable to their needs is something that's something that people don't want to really think about and the kind of the nimbyism that's happened in the last like that's been happening. But I guess my bigger question for you is what like what does building of affordable housing even look like in this city and like when we have sentiments like this throughout the greater Toronto area where people would rather save a parking lot than see other people who live in their communities be housed? I think it's clear that in Toronto, exclusion from home ownership and racialization are the clearest demarcation lines of class, right? So home ownership and the you know steadily increasing value of property in the city creates a different set of class interests, right? And so you see these examples, like the parking lot incident, where homeowners organize around defense of their property values and to maintain their essentially segregated residential area. And so I think there's a role for working class organizing based in neighborhoods to to take that on and to actively oppose efforts by homeowners to maintain segregationist residential policies in defense of their of their own property values. I also think that it's a myth that increasing the housing supply solves the housing question. You know, in Toronto for many years, it's been more profitable to build condominiums than it has to build purpose-built rental apartments. There's no lack of actual units of housing. It's that the market, the way the market structures ownership over the available units. And uh, and so as we wrap up, we wanted to talk a bit about how it's a lot of this organizing is obviously beyond electoral politics and not many politicians or enough or really any in some circumstances are, to my knowledge, really regularly, adamantly fighting this and, and kind of figuring out what do we do about the housing crisis in cities throughout Canada now. And so apartment buildings have often sometimes been described as vertical neighborhoods. And we see out of different tenant unions like Crescent Town and other tenant unions that there's food drives, diaper drives. Um, There's different ways like in Crescent Town, there's sometimes people who will give a room of their apartment to be a prayer room for the community and like making these makeshift ways of having community. And so Cole, how does organizing show that as communities, people can punch beyond uh, their weight and show up for each other, but also uh, resist? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first of all, you know, working class people are intelligent and exhibit so much fortitude in in their lives, right? And so people within the working class are in a situation where they need to relate to one another in ways in order to survive day to day. And I think the the role of organizing is to highlight these examples and expand upon them, right? Work to expand upon them. So I think a really good example of that in Parkdale, 
that I'm familiar with under COVID is what's happened at the West Lodge buildings, where tenants have organized food distribution, distribution of PPE, uh, school supplies, and so on uh, throughout the months of the pandemic. This is not being done by any outside social service. Uh, This is being organized by and for working class people residing in the West Lodge Towers. The West Lodge Towers were purchased uh, by a financialized landlord in 2018. A company called Timber Creek Asset Management, which has recently rebranded itself as now called Hazelview. At any rate, the, the strategy of this landlord was to evict as many tenants as possible. And in their attempt to completely change the composition of those apartment buildings, they decided to hold vacant rental units off the market entirely. So the West Lodge complex comprises 700 units. At the height of this, there were close to 200 units. And sitting empty during a housing crisis being held off the market. Just so poor people wouldn't rent them. Exactly. So how organizers at the West Lodge buildings responded to the situation was brilliant. They saw all these units being left vacant. They had a food distribution program that they were running. Uh, So they decided to take a unit for their food bank. And I think we'll be hearing more from the West Lodge tenants about their experience with that, I think, in the coming days. But just to say that the creativity and intelligence that, you know, working class people exhibit when they when they come together and, and organize, there's there's no limit to the depth and strength of that. Thank you so much, Cole. We really appreciate it. T- taking time with us today. Also, where can people find you online and where can they find who you organize with and where can they find resources to learn more? Parkdale Organize is an organization of working class people based in the Parkdale neighborhood in Toronto. Its website is parkdaleorganize.ca. It's on Facebook and on Twitter. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at patreon forward slash habibti please and you can find us on twitter at habibti please with a b this takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content so it's much appreciated yalla let's grab some tea and shisha